0: The sermon text reading is from Luke 1, 67 through 80. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us
1: Well, it's beginning to feel a little bit like Christmas, huh? You know, we got the trees up, poinsettias, the the candles lit for Advent. Uh, Christmas is so much about tradition, isn't it? I mean, if there's one time of year where we experience tradition, it's it's now. For our family, for instance, we will put up the we'll put the ornaments on the tree today. We've already put the lights up. But Handel's Messiah will be playing in our household. That is Kirsten's fave from her childhood. Uh, as well, uh, we have what are called pigs in the blanket. Do you know what those are? We take little sausages, wrap them in crescents, crescent rolls, bake them in the oven. I get hungry just talking about that. That's Christmas morning every year. And so we have our traditions. You have your traditions. But one of the traditions that we all have that none of us actually want is the pressure of Christmas. Am I right about that? I mean, there's stress. There's anxiety. We all experience it. And one of the things that I feel every year when I watch the Christmas commercials, it's a December to Remember event after all, right? The car with the bow, those sorts of things. And there's a lot of pressure to come through for family members with gifts. And what we do is we put all the pressure on Christmas Day itself and its meaning, meaning giving of gifts. That's really, for a lot of us in here, that's a lot of where the pressure comes, also additional pressure with your families. And so there's certain traumas and triggers that we experience in our, in our families that you can't help because you go home for the holidays, and you experience those things all over again. I mean, Christmas is often a very stressful time of the year. But I want to share a message with you this morning. It's the message of hope. And here's why. Because unlike what we do with secular Christmas... Here at City Church and in the Christ, Christian calendar in general, we celebrate Advent. Advent, adventus from the Latin meaning arrival. Advent is this whole season, a month, leading up to Christmas. And what Advent does is it's rightly taking back Christmas so that we might see it for what it actually is. It's a season of preparation, actually. And when you have a season of preparation, when you have time to prepare like that, and the message of preparation is one of peace... One of relax, chill a little bit in our souls. It actually takes the pressure off Christmas. And so Advent, every year we do a series here at Advent. This one's called The Light from Darkness. We're focusing on the metaphor, the theme of light here. And uh, you may not know this, but Jesus wasn't actually born on December 25th. Uh, shock there. He was actually probably born in the springtime. So why, Scott, do we celebrate December 25th, his birth? And the answer is, it's just a few days after the winter solstice. Now, there are a number of reasons for this. But one of the things is that light, believe it or not, on December 25th, as dark as it is right now, on December 25th, it's actually a little bit lighter than it will have been just three days before that. And so what the church was doing from time memorial was telling the story that with the coming of Jesus, light is coming to the world. Light is increasing. There's hope. And so this morning I want to talk about the dawning of the light through the prophecy of Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus. In this passage here in Luke chapter 1, Jesus is being celebrated by Zechariah. It actually comes on the other side of this of this great gift being given to Zechariah and to Elizabeth, the birth of John in their infertility, into the barrenness of the womb of Elizabeth. But the focus is not on John the Baptist. As you're going to see, it's on Jesus. And so this morning, I want us to avoid two things. I want us to avoid secular Christmas, which puts all the pressure on on being perfect, on on coming through. I also want us to avoid the extreme, which is what some Christians do, and that is to avoid... Christmas altogether because of the trauma or because of its association with secularism and so forth. No, I think the Lord wants us to celebrate Christmas and do it well. And so I think what Zechariah says to us in this passage actually is a word of hope. There's two things. One, he says, you must know God. You must know who he actually is at Christmas time. And the second, what he's done. Knowing him, then knowing what he's done. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And I know that by, as we jump in here with the first thing, knowing God, I also know this, that that when you come into a passage where it begins with the word and, that begs the question, well, what happened before that? And so, and when you do a thematic series, by the way, like this, when you jump into a book like the Gospel of Luke, or, you know, elsewhere into the book, I know the reality is it's sort of like arriving in a movie and you thought you arrived on time and instead you're 30 minutes late. And you're wondering, what did I miss? And you spend the rest of that movie trying to put the pieces together, trying to figure out what happened before. So let me tell you about the first 30 minutes of the movie called Zechariah. It begins in verse 8 of chapter 1. Let's read together verses 8 through 10 real quickly. Now, while he was serving as priest, this is Zechariah, before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So Zechariah was a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And what the priests would have done was they would have gone for two weeks at a time up to Jerusalem. And they would have lived in the village surrounding Jerusalem. And so Elizabeth is back home and, and he's up at the, at the temple. And one of the great opportunities, it only happened once in your lifetime as a priest, was that if you were chosen by Lot, you would go into what's called the Altar of Incense room. And it was right next to the Holy of Holies, the very center of the temple where God's presence was celebrated. And so every day they would go to the altar of incense right in front of this massive three-story curtain that separated the altar of incense from the Holy of Holies. And there at the altar, incense would be wafting up to the heavens. And there's there's a verse elsewhere that says our prayers are like incense that are wafted up and that God smells our prayers is what this other verse says. And so what's happening is that every day the people would gather at the temple and they would ask for the priest to advocate on their behalf, to go into the temple and to offer prayers to God there as a priest at the altar of incense. And so this is Zechariah's day. He's chosen, if he had a cell phone, he would have been on the phone with Elizabeth saying, can you believe it? This is my day and my career, the most important day of my life. And I'm going in right now, Elizabeth. And so he goes in. Now, well, here's what happens right after verse 10. It says that an angel of the Lord appears right next to the altar. And here's what we know. We know that Zechariah prayed for at least two things that day when he was at the altar of incense. First one, he was praying for the coming of the Messiah. How do we know that? Because every faithful Jew during that day would gather uh, the prayers of the people, we, we call them prayers of the people, for them it was the prayers of incense. And one of the things he always asked for was that they would see the Messiah. And so we know that Zechariah is, is asking for that prayer, but we also know of a second prayer. And it's in verse 13. Let's read that. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Elizabeth was barren in her old age. They had been praying for years, if not decades, for a child. And suddenly, on the biggest day of Zechariah's priestly career, an angel appears and says, God has heard your prayer. Now, I'm not going to focus on what I'm about to tell you as much. I'm going to focus on the bigger story that we're going to spend most of our time with here. But I want to say two things to you really quickly that we could so easily miss in this passage. That if we miss it, Man, I think we missed something really important here. Two things about small stories. First of all, in the midst of a small story, Zechariah, big mercy. I know that what I'm about to say to you next, you've, you, you've heard this before. You've read it in different books. And you expected to hear from a pastor. But actually, I don't say it that much. I think a lot of pastors don't say that much. And it's this, God cares for you. God really loves you. And I know that for some of you right now, there are enough people in this room that for some of you right now, you're wondering if He actually loves you, if He actually cares for you. Because right now in the midst of your marriage, which has gone sideways on you, in the midst of your singleness, in the midst of the loneliness, which could also be in marriage, in the midst of a career that's just not working out, all the different things that we end up talking about, you know, I end up talking about in, in pastoral counseling appointments. Like right now you're wondering, does God care for me? And I want you to think about that for a second. In the midst of of decades of praying, God has been listening to the prayer of Zechariah. And on this day in particular, the angel says, God heard your prayer. That's mercy. And even if an angel doesn't arrive at your doorstep today, you should know that God has heard your prayer. And even if he doesn't answer your prayer like you're hoping he will answer your prayer, you need to know that God has heard your prayer. And he cares for you, Scott, how do you know that he cares for me? That's what the rest of the sermon's going to be about. But just hold on to that right now that God cares for you. Here's the second thing in a small story. Who was Zechariah? He was a nobody. There's nothing special about Zechariah. You need to know that. There's nothing special about Elizabeth, honestly, and yet, in a small person, in a small story, big things. Man, I think that's so important for us, because none of us in this room, right? A generation after we die, will anyone know our names? From the world's perspective, we are almost meaningless. We are inconsequential in the greater scope of history. And yet, the reality is just like General Maximus says in Gladiator, one of my favorite movies, that great line where he says, right before they go into battle, gentlemen, men, what you do today on the battlefield will echo into eternity, he says. And your lives, as small as they are by the world's standard, your lives echo into eternity. And Zechariah had no idea that, that his life would echo into eternity. And now we're reading about that. That's unique, that's special. And most of us won't have people reading our stories 2,000 years from now. But you need to know that what you do today, because of Christ in you, echoes into eternity. Your life is not just what you're experiencing for 70, 80 years on this world. What you do today echoes into eternity. And so into your small stories, into, into the work that you do, whether you're a pastor like myself or whether it's you're working uh, at Wall Street, whether you're sweeping floors as a janitor, all points in between, what you do echoes into eternity because it is kingdom work. Because God is remaking this world. One image of God at a time. Your work matters to the Lord. I didn't want to miss that even though that's not the focus here. And so what is the focus? Well, here's what happens. The only thing that Zechariah knew at this point was what we call the Old Testament. And imagine being Zechariah. I mean, he's been this faithful uh, priest. who has been praying all these things about about what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Suddenly, he has this light bulb goes off. Pun intended, right? The light goes off for him. And he sees for the first time all these different pieces of the puzzle from the Old Testament. It's sort of like the movie Sixth Sense, right? And so... You know, it came out a long, long time ago, like a generation ago now. And so, if I ruin the plot for you, that's your fault. You've had 20 years to see it, okay? But, you know, Shy Mullins, one of his first films, if not his very first film. By the way, if you're a film director, you don't want your best film to be your first film. Because everyone measures you by all the other films that came after the first one, right? You know, it sucks, right? Because that was his best one, it turned out. Now, uh, so... So you remember the storyline? Bruce Willis plays a psychologist, and in the whole movie, you're like, well, like you're feeling bad for Haley Joel Osment and his character, the little boy. Like he's got some psychological issues. Remember the meme? I see dead people. Some of you had no idea that's where it came came from. It came from that movie. I see dead people. And so, at the very end of the movie, what happens? The light bulb goes off for Bruce Willis's psychologist. He's like, Oh, I'm dead. That's the reason why the boy can see me. And then what happens at the very end of the film is that they have these, these flashbacks. And, and you see all these different bits in the, of the storyline. It's all coming together. Well, this is the sixth sense for Zechariah. He's beginning to see all the pieces of the puzzle come together. He's like, aha, this is what it's all about. And so into the, the, my story and the intersection of this story comes the story of God, the big story. And so, here's what I want you to see. Two things about what it means to know God that Zechariah focuses on. Here's the first one. The power of God. That God is powerful. Look with me again at verses 68-71. through Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us now, the first thing I want you to see there is the word "horn. I know it didn 't jump off the page for you think, "Oh, power" because in the old testament it 's strange in the english it 's strange to hear this, but whenever you see the word "horn" in the Old Testament, it means power, and so sometimes you 'll read this in the psalms they 'll talk about the horns of the king. Or the horns of the nation. And that means the strength of the nation. The might of the nation. The strength of that king. And so, what is the power of God according to Zechariah? The power of God is the horn of salvation. It's not just any power. It's not just any strength. It's the power to make salvation for the nations. It's the power to change lives, as we like to say here at City Church. That's what's happening here. And then he says, what's going to happen with the Horn of Salvation? How, what will he do? And the answer is, he will deliver us from our enemies, Zechariah says, and from those who hate us. Now, for Israel and for Zechariah, who was a part of Israel 2,000 years ago, they know all about enemies. I know that for us as Christians, because we're constantly reading the story of Israel, we're constantly reading the story of the Jewish people, we might say to ourselves, especially if you study the King David and Solomon, things like that. Oh, they were a mighty nation. No, they weren't. They were a nobody nation. And you know what? I remember years ago, we were in Istanbul, Turkey, and at a museum that studies all of ancient civilization there. And we, we, we come across these, these little um, um, tablets and things that would mention these kings. that are mentioned in the Old Testament. These Assyrian kings. And when you're there, you realize, oh my gosh, there's so much more going on than this little story that we record in the Old Testament. Like, in terms of world history, Israel was a nobody. I mean, they were a podunk country, friends. And, and so, I mention that here because the strength of God is not in this nation. And sure enough, they're surrounded by enemies all day long. I mean, Israel knew enemies. They didn't have the power. And so what does Zechariah say here? Zechariah says, we don't have power, but God does. And God is going to be the one. We're not going to deliver ourselves from the nations. We're not going to deliver ourselves from our enemies. And here's the most important thing I can tell you about that. Okay? That ultimately what Zechariah is saying is not the physical nations that surround them. Not the historical nations, but the power behind those nations. Remember, we just got to talk about power. The horn of salvation. There's this place in in one of the letters that Paul writes in Ephesians, St. Paul. And what St. Paul says there is he says, We do not battle against flesh and blood, but against what? The principalities, the spiritual powers. When he says, delivers from those who hate us, ultimately it's not the pagan nations surrounding Israel. It's Satan himself. That's what's at stake here at Christmas. You know, we all love Lord of the Rings. We've mentioned it virtually every week that you're here. Um, at least I do. It was, by, by the way, it was Matt last week who mentioned it, not me. Okay, uh, Lord of the Rings. Remember, I mean, well, remember, there's so many different places in Lord of the Rings where they're fighting the orcs, right? It's the men of Gondor fighting the orcs. It's the Fellowship of the Ring fighting the orcs. And And, you know, when you're watching that or when you're reading the books, you instinctively know... That that the hatred of the orcs towards the men of Gondor and the Fellowship of the Ring, it's not just the orcs. It's not just that the orcs woke up one day and said, Aha, I'm going to hate on the men of the world of Middle Earth. No. Who are they created by? Sauron, who's invisible. And so instinctively, we know that when when the orcs are defeated, we know that Sauron's kingdom is going down. Amen? And so. What I want you to see here is that Zechariah is celebrating the fact that, that God is defeating the evil one, the very promise, which leads to the second thing here that, that he says you must know this about God at Christmas time. And here it is, right? That not only is he powerful, but he is faithful. Look at verses 72 through 75. Why has he delivered us from our enemies? To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There's so many important words here that, that we could just spend lots of time on, whole sermons on, but let me just point out two things. One is the mercy promised us. That God in the prophets, that goes all the way back to verse 70. Talking about the prophets of old, Zechariah says there in verse 70. This is going all the way back to Genesis, to Moses, and writing down that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there was a Messiah that was promised God's people who would defeat the evil one, Satan himself. And then as the Old Testament progresses, more and more revelation, more and more light is given to what that means. And the word that's always used in the Old Testament is the word covenant. Covenant means I will be your God and you will be My people. And here's what that relationship will look like. And the kings, when they're practicing holiness, are supposed to reflect the goodness of God and His leadership and strength and mercy over God's people. And God's people were to respond to, to the king by giving their lives to serve that king and in doing so, to serve God. And what, what Zechariah is celebrating here is that the prophets had promised that a better king was coming that one who would rule with mercy and with grace and with strength. And what Zechariah says is that I now know that with the coming of my son, John the Baptist, as a forerunner, and then Elizabeth's cousin Mary giving birth to Jesus, I now know that God is faithful to his promises. Can you imagine? For thousands of years, they've been waiting for the Messiah in Zechariah with the the arrival of an angel at the altar of incense is the one who gets to experience it for the first time. How cool would that be? You're right. How cool would that be? The mercy promised. I want to stop here. And I want, I want you to know this. No matter what it is that you're facing right now in your life, God has already fulfilled promise for you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you already have a fulfilled promise. The Messiah has come for you. He hasn't just come for the world, generic. He's come for you. That's a celebration right there. And my question for you here at the end of this first point is this. Is, is Do you actually know God and His character? Some of you know that a few weeks ago we were in Greece for our anniversary. It was supposed to have been two-years-ago anniversary, but COVID had other plans for us. And, and so while we were there, we were at a place called the Acropolis. And if you've studied Western civilization, most of you have, you know that the Acropolis is like, the, like one of the most pinnacle places in all of, of ancient Greek civilization where the Temple of Zeus, the Parthenon, is. A few other temples are still up there. Some of the other things have been taken down by earthquakes and war. But we were up there on the Acropolis, and we have just been through the Parthenon, and we're on our way back, th- we're about to go back down, we're going by what's called the Temple of Herod, it's beautiful there, and I look up, and you know who's there? Rick Steves. Okay, so most of you know who that is, some of you will not, so let me tell you who Rick Steves is. Rick Steves is a travel guru, alright, and if you've, if, if you've been to Europe and you've had a travel book, chances are you've either seen his show on PBS, right? Right. Or you've read one of his books, Europe Through the Back Door. I love that guidebook. OK, but but, you know, so we I'd read all the guidebooks. I've seen his shows, yada, yada like that. And suddenly right in front of me, manifested in front of me is Rick Steves. And I'm like, Kirsten, Rick Steves. And he's like 30 feet in front of me. And he was actually there to film a new show called Create. I hope I'm not giving anything away because we actually recorded part of his show on our phones that day. And so he so he is he's recording the show, and then the cameraman, he's only there with a handler and a cameraman. That's it. And so the cameraman says, All right, take five. And so I immediately bust a move and I go up to him and I'm like, Rick, man, we love your show. We love your guidebooks. He's like, he's like, well, thank you, man. And um I said, Can we get a picture with you? And he goes, No, I'm working. I'm like, was, I'm thousands of miles away from home, once-in-a-lifetime encounter, and you just rejected me. I'm crestfallen. And so, and so the Temple of Hera is right there. That's what he was in filming in front of. And so I told Kirsten, I said, well, Kirsten, why don't you stand there? I'm going to get a picture of you there. Well, for I think two reasons, Rick Steves had a change of heart. Number one, he realized he could get a picture with my beautiful wife. I think that was part of it, quite honestly. And then secondly, I think he's burning with guilt. that He's just told me no after I've praised him. So I, I, have, I have my camera, and suddenly Rick Steves pops into my camera view. Oh, like, this is amazing. So I get a picture, and I'm like, I want a picture with Rick Steves. And so I hand the phone to the handler, and I jump in with a picture with him. This is the picture. I think we've got it, right? Yeah. The real deal there. Proof in the pudding. He was there. I was there. We were there. Sort of thing like that. Why do I tell you that? That picture there, let's put it up one last time. Look at that grin on Rick Steves. Not me, Rick Steves. Look at that grin from ear to ear. Now, if you've ever seen his show, that's Rick Steves. Grinning from ear to ear. You've never met him more more jubilant than Rick Steves. And I'm telling you, we're watching him filming, and we're seeing, this is like, oh, this is like the television, but the real thing, Like we're seeing Rick Steves. But we walked away, and we're about to come off the hill. And I look back, And Rick Steves is standing by himself and he's not smiling. And he's by by himself and he looks lonely. And it was jarring because I realized I thought I knew who Rick Steves was. And and Rick Steves was just like one little portion of of him was what you see on television, but the reality is he's more complex than that. His emotions are more complex than that. His his view on his face is more complex than that. And I think for Zechariah, You're wondering where I was going with all this, let me tell you. I think for Zechariah, and we could take Rick off now. Um, I think for Zechariah, I think he thought he knew who God was. And then the angel of the Lord appears. He has a face-to-face encounter with with an angel of the Lord representing God himself. And you remember what happens there? What we didn't read is this. He questions the angel. He says, I... mm, not sure. Can, can you give me a sign that this is really going to happen? And because of that distrust, the angel of the Lord says, your mouth will be shut. He'll be mute for nine months. And while, that, while John the Baptist was growing in the womb of Elizabeth, while this miracle was taking place, he had nine months to think about it, <laughs> which led to the praise that we just read. The first words after he says his name will be John are these words. He had a lot to praise about God after nine months. But I mention that because I think that when there's a counter with God, he realized that he didn't know God the way he thought he did. You don't need an angel of the Lord this morning to have your concept of God challenged and changed. And I think all of us here at Christmastime, we need that. And again, for some of us, it will be because we, we've been through hardship and, and, the, and, the, and the holidays trigger more trauma, they trigger more hardship, and so the question is, is God good, right? And and listen, there's a, there's, a, there's a word of hope for us who haven't had an angel of the Lord appear in front of us the way it did for Zechariah, right? There's this one scene after Jesus is resurrected where he's with Thomas, the doubting disciple. Remember doubting Thomas? And remember what, what Jesus says after he sees the the nails and the, the scars and, and the wrist of Jesus. He sees where He was speared in the side. Then remember in verse 29 of John chapter 20, what He says? He says this. He says, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen Me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The fulfilled promises of what God has done prior to you existing are enough to believe that God is good for you this morning. Because Jesus has come. Advent is a celebration that he has come, but we're waiting for the fulfillment of all things. No more tears, no more sorrow, but we live with confidence and faith in the moment in between. Which leads to the second thing, and this is where we're going to close. And that is to see exactly what he's done through the giving of the son. Number of things, three things. Number one, he's visited us. That's what incarnation is all about. If there's one time in the year where we celebrate God incarnate, what is it? It's the Christ child. It's Christmas morning. The birth of God into the world. And it says in verse 68, what does it say there if you go back and look at it? It says, he has visited us and delivered us. What was he prophesying but the birth of Jesus to come? Just a few months later, it turns out. He's saying that God, in his might and in his power, but also in his mercy, has come to us. Some of you know that I was trained in apologetics as an evangelist before I became a pastor. And I would, I would, prim, you know, I would, I would regularly meet with people who were skeptics of the faith. And, and that really helped. I mean, it really changed my heart towards the world. It was just meeting with people who had questions. And so I spent four years just primarily working with people with questions. One of the most dominant questions that I, I still hear, but I would hear, was this. It would say, if God is all-powerful, he can't be all loving because of, of suffering. Or, or He really is all loving. He is mercy. He is compassion. But He certainly cannot be all powerful because of suffering in the world. And what we celebrate at Christmas is that it's a, it's a false dichotomy, this choosing of either words of both and, that He is both power and He is both compassion That's in incarnation. Because how is it that we know that God loves us? It isn't just that God was born into the world, but it is that in His incarnation, the ultimate incarnation, Mike and I were talking about that this morning, was that He was dismembered for us at the cross. That He took upon the anguish of sin in His own anguish of suffering. And it was there that we found out that suffering was purposeful, that it was meaningful, which means what for you and for me, that as we experience suffering, I think of life right now as PC and AC, pre-COVID and, and after COVID. I mean, if 18 months ago, the world was a completely different place and it feels like it was a generation ago. Doesn't it? And I think that's, that's our life, that's our world, all these shattered dreams. And, and what, what I want you to hear is that the, with, the, with Jesus coming to the world, incarnation, that he has visited us, that he visits you in your grief with strength that defeats death in your life and compassion that gives you hope that one day no more tears, no more sorrow. So he's visited us here. This is why here and all year long, not just Dev if you're brand new to City Church, you need to know this about us. You need to know what are you getting into here. We are passionate for Jesus at City Church. Jesus is the center of our everything. Believe me, I've been in places where, uh, different homes, houses of religion where Jesus is barely mentioned. and But here, Jesus is the center of our everything because there is no life apart from Christ. Not just at Advent, not just at Easter, but all year long, He is our celebration. He's the center of our everything. And so, my question is who are you prepping for? Are you prepping for family to arrive or are you prepping for Jesus to arrive and to encounter you and change you in a cosmic way? in your small but important and valuable lives in front of the Savior. And here's where I went in. end. I want you to see it's not just that He visited, but He brought light to us. I entitled the sermon, The Dawning of the Light, because of what happens here in these verses, 76 through 79. I look at it again. And you, child, meaning John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah barely mentions John, his son. Immediately goes straight to, but let me tell you why he's come. To rid our world of darkness. You know, I've, I've gone on cave tours before. I mean, you may have done the same thing and you get in there, you know what happens? They You get to that point where they turn off all the lights, right? And and you turn off your flashlights, that sort of thing. And I thought that at 6 a.m. in the morning, trying to protect my wife from waking up, I stumble around in the darkness. I thought I knew darkness. But you, you don't know darkness until you're in a cave and the lights go off and you can't even see your hand one inch in front of your face. That is pitch black. That is true darkness. And what do you do when you're in a place like that? You don't move. And, and so this picture that Zechariah gives us is of people who are, paralyzed or stumbling around in the darkness and i think about our world this has been a hard 18 months globally nationally and locally and individually for us we know something about darkness right both internally and externally we know something about darkness and what is it we learn here at christmas time that god is attracted to the darkness What do I mean by that? Genesis 1, verses 2 and 3. The earth was that form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Jesus is the dawning of the light, one translation says. As we sing in the songs, O come, O come, O come, Emmanuel, O come, thou dayspring. The light has dawned. Hope has come. We experience incarnational love. One of our elders, Reed, uh, just two mornings ago in the Advents. You guys enjoy the Advents, written by our staff and elders. Oh, my gosh. I'm just seeing whole different sides of our staff and elders. But They can write. It's amazing. I love it. And, and Reed was writing his, and, and he was saying there that love is primarily not an emotion. It's an action. I was like, amen. He wrote all these different ways that God has acted. And for us, incarnation. The ultimate act of God was incarnation. And the ultimate, ultimate act was that that incarnation was dismembered for us at the cross. And it leads to the last thing, and that is peace. The last thing that we're told here, the very last words of this prophecy, were that He, in coming and reconciling us, will lead us in the way of peace. Recently, just a few days ago, I was, I was experiencing some tension with one of my daughters, and she came to me and she confronted me. And she's like, I feel like you're not part of this family sometimes. And what, you know, you're not participating. There's something that happened. Uh, over the holidays, where she she rightfully pointed that out, and so I said, "Forgive me, I'm I'm sorry." It's something else that happened too. It was, it was a double whammy, and and so I said, "You're right about that." And and as soon as, as soon as we reconciled, we immediately had peace with each other, and I, I felt so connected to her. But you know what also happened? I noticed that shortly after I left her room, she was singing, and 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 to know my daughters, when she sings, you know all is well in her life. And, and I say that because, because when she was singing, I could tell, man, it wasn't just that we were reconciled, that she was living according to how she was designed to be. When Zechariah says the Messiah will come and he will change your life, what does he say? He says that you might serve him. One of the phrases we use here is between the Sundays. That it's not just about what we do here on Sunday mornings for an hour. It's about how do we live our lives 24-7 for the other 167 hours of the week. We get an opportunity to worship Him, and we have an opportunity this holiday season to tell a different story through Advent, to take back Christmas, but in a way that this doesn't challenge the world as much as invites the world to participate in the life of Jesus Christ. And so for you, may you be blessed. May you be blessed with incarnational, actionable love in your life so that you might live out incarnation for the nation's and they will come and call our Lord blessed and say, He's now my Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the gift of Christmas. Literally, Christmas, Christ Mass. The Mass of Christ that we celebrate every Sunday here at City Church. Lord, we thank You that we have the opportunity to worship Him, not just on a Sunday morning, but between the Sundays, 24-7 with our lives. We thank You for the Christ child, Uh, became the child who became a man who who went to the cross for us, for me, for my friends here. Lord, be glorified in our lives here during the holiday season. May we live lives of celebration, even in the midst of hardship, if be. But may we live such lives that people say, I want to know who your God is. May this be. We pray this in the name of Jesus, Lord and Savior. Amen.
0: Now we continue in worship through
1: through a confession. And this, once a month,
0: we confess what we believe instead of confessions of sin. And here, th- this confession is about what unites us. What is it that unifies us as a body? And so
1: let's take a moment and pray this prayer of confession, this, the Apostles' Creed, together out
0: loud. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried.